There was one evening that I was working late, as I always did there, and uh, Norm Garcia was working late. And uh, we noticed that somebody earlier in the day had gone into the library and just dumped a whole mess of stuff in the middle of the library floor. And uh, if that had been left overnight, the janitors would have cleaned that up and it would have been in the dumpster. So this could be the story of any union. Today, it's the IWA, the International Woodworkers of America. And the story of how the IWA archive began was almost lost and continues to preserve the records of what was once British Columbia's largest and most powerful union. Today's report comes to us from On the Line, Stories of BC Workers, the Canadian Labor History Storytelling Podcast produced by the volunteers and staff of the BC Labor Heritage Center. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1919. That was the day that the chorus girls of the Ziegfeld Follies formed a union. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that aims to shine a light on BC's rich labour heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickelburn. we are focusing on something a little different. Rather than a union battle or significant labor breakthrough, we take a look at some special people who helped make it possible to tell all those stories. Stories that might otherwise remain unknown to the public. That's the goal of the BC Labor Heritage Centre, which produces this podcast, to preserve and make BC's valuable labor history accessible. One way to do that is by creating union archives that can be used by academics, teachers, journalists, and so on. A good archive is invaluable, and that's what we have in Lake Cowichan, where the Katza Historical Society has collaborated with some former members of the International Woodworkers of America, now part of the Steelworkers, to build the IWA Annex Archive. Don't be fooled by the rather nondescript title. It's one of the best labor archives in BC, if not the best. This is their story. The founding convention of the IWA took place in Tacoma, Washington in July of 1937. The new union's first president was Harold Pritchett from the Fraser Valley, the first Canadian to lead an international union. Under his leadership, the BCIWA became the most powerful union in the province, with 25,000 newly organized members. But Prichette and other leaders were also communists, and the IWA became caught up in a nasty political fight that was won by the anti-communists, or so-called white bloc. But the bitter struggle has made it difficult to access documents that tell the full story of the union. 
Luckily, there were a number of IWA leaders and activists who recognized the importance of keeping and sharing the Union's history. Thanks to their efforts, we now have the IWA Annex Archive, located appropriately in the Cowichan Valley, that was home to the very first IWA local in BC. John Mountain began working in sawmills in 1977. A strong trade unionist, he was a shop steward, a project leader in his local, and then in 1998 he moved to the IWA's head office in Vancouver, where he managed the Rate Determination and Job Evaluation Program. When declining membership caused the union to move to cheaper offices in Burnaby, the union's archives almost didn't make it. John Mountain. So, to make that move, the office downtown had to pack a lot of stuff up. And uh, I think the story that uh, you're referring to is uh, a story about, uh, you know, and I didn't really know that much about archives, and I mean, I always liked history, but uh, there was one evening that I was working late, as I always did there, and uh, Norm Garcia was working late, and uh, we noticed that somebody earlier in the day had gone into the library and just dumped a whole mess of stuff in the middle of the library floor. And uh, if that had been left overnight, the janitors would have cleaned that up and it would have been in the dumpster. So Norm, he started, well, you know, let's get some boxes. We gotta rescue this stuff because uh, there's some good stuff in here. So he started in honor and uh, I helped him in a way. And, we put it back in boxes and left it to the one side. And, and that material ended up, it's here now. Not all of it, but it was some of it. So when we moved to Burnaby, um, we took quite a bit of stuff with us. Uh, we really didn't have a, a large piece of real estate. There was a couple areas where Norman, you know, he hid the stuff away. He had one room, quite impressive. It was something like our archives, you know, had shelves and boxes. And there was enough material that the union actually hired off-site storage. So there was two locations which the rest of the boxes went to. When the Commercial Street office of local 1217, which is the Vancouver local, when it closed on Commercial Street, they needed a place to put what they had. And they ended up bringing it out to our office in Burnaby. The only room that we could find was a, a, a room in the parkade. So concrete all the way around, concrete floor, and the stuff was piled up in there on the concrete floor. Well, they had a flood. So any box that was on the bottom was kind of mush. And uh, the I guess someone who was ever managing the building at that time had actually offered that space to someone else in the building. So we had to get rid of it. And uh, rather than throw it out, I managed to find a space for it uh, in the bunker, we called it, which was basically a large storage area underneath the front sidewalk of the building. And because I was kind of the guy who looked after the building, the maintenance-wise, I kind of knew where all these hiding spots were. 
So I spent a couple evenings with a dolly and went through all this stuff. There was paintings and all sorts of like real artifacts, not just paper, and managed to get it all up underneath there. And that's where it stayed until uh, 2014. Wood for pulp and wood for doors, wood for your homes, your furniture, your floors. Wood is everywhere and someplace along the way. It was touched by a member of the IWA, a mighty fine union. Men and women working under pretty fair conditions. But it hasn't been easy because we've been a long time marching down the Union Road. You know, uh, in 2012, uh, Norm Garcia and I, we'd started talking about that we need to do something with this stuff. And we'd explored some leads with uh, a couple of universities in the Lower Mainland, UBC and Simon Fraser. And at that time, UBC already had some of the IWA material. I didn't know what it was, I've never seen it. Also, there was a University of Eugene, Oregon, had some of the American artifacts in there. UBC, uh, they were nice enough to write back and tell us that they'll take some of the stuff, but we have to have a commitment of money to go towards hiring another person to look after it. And that wasn't high enough on a priority in our office. So what we did is uh, we just said thanks but no thanks and we started looking around for another place that this could go. It ended up, as we have said, in Lake Cowichan, thanks in part to the timeless work of renowned valley photographer Wilmer Gold. His vivid, vintage photographs depicted so much of the region's past, including the logging industry. Jack Monroe died, I think, in 2012, 2013. And uh, when we had the memorial uh, over in the, uh, the new convention center, uh, it was uh, Alan Lundgren and Norman and I, we kind of talked about maybe we should take this a little bit further and do something about it. At that time as well, we were using some of Wilmer Gold's photos. And by the way, our office, the office in Meridanby, magnificent Wilmer Gold, big, like three by four feet, big paintings blown. We had them all over our office. It was really amazing. So when we had, would have a convention or a safety conference, our guests would receive a Wilmer Gold photo, framed and with a citation on the back. And the, the first photos came from the Katza Museum. Barb Simpkins was the curator up here at that time. And we had an arrangement that she would create the photos, have them printed, give them to us, and we would frame them and give them to our guests. Well, I live in Shemanus. So rather than Barb boxing these up and couriering, couriering them over to Vancouver, she came up to my place in Shemanus, and we'd do an exchange in the driveway. And it was at that time that I said, Barb, we got these, this archive. We're looking for a place. Would you guys be interested in all that maybe, you know, you might be, be able to do something with it? She thought it was a great idea. She went back and talked to the board of directors here in the Katza Historical Society, and basically that's what got the ball rolling. Pat Foster is president of the Katza Historical Society. 
It looks after both the Katza Station Museum and the IWA Annex. Pat grew up in the nearby former logging town of Yubo. She got bit by the local history bug when she attended a play at her kid's school about a local character named Henry March. Later, as a Lake Cowichan town councillor, she was appointed to the Katza Historical Society and has remained active ever since. The Society's first IWA material came from the Union's former Duncan local, but there was more to come from the provincial office. And uh, then John Mountain brought them over on November the 15th, no, November of 2015. He came with a cube van and uh, all the way from Vancouver, full of boxes, 350 plus boxes, plus all the artifacts that go with it. And we stored them in the Bell Tower School because we had no, we didn't have this edition. And so we stored them in the Bell Tower School. We had boxes lining all the walls. And, uh, and the class, we have a little mo uh, model classroom over there. And the little classroom was full with boxes. We had boxes everywhere. So after that, we thought, well, we've got to do something about how we're going to house this and do it. So we, we came up with the idea to build the edition. After years of raising money, the Historical Society was ready to start building. But they also needed volunteers. Terry Inglis stepped forward in a big way. The retired trade unionist had worked in industry and the construction trades all his life. He put that experience and knowledge to work. They had the vision. They had raised the money or were raising the money. And when it came time for construction is when I became involved in that and kind of just watched the uh, contractors come in, do the excavation, put the foundation in. And uh, then frame and take the annex to lockup. Once it was at lockup, then I became more involved. The concrete was poured, the, uh, the building, the, the frame of the building, the, the walls and the, the outside were up and it, uh, and the doors were on, the windows were in, it was at lockup. But inside, it was open framing, it, had, it still had to be wired, insulated, drywalled. Uh, a local fellow, Duncan Brown, uh, certified electrician. He drew the permit. I assisted him in doing the wiring. Uh, once the wiring was done, then I went to work with the help of a couple of the other fellows. We insulated it and then put up the, the gyprock on the walls and uh, a couple of local fellows, brothers, the Scramstead boys, and I can't remember their names, they came in and did the drywall taping and filling. Uh, once they had finished that, we painted it, and then uh, basically here we are. Uh, the archive is operational. So it was about a year and a half from when they started digging the hole in the ground until we had the had the room uh, completed to the point where we could start putting archival material in it. The IWA Annex opened in May of 2019 
it was a remarkable achievement and a proud moment for all those who worked so hard to make it happen. Pat Foster. It's, it's such an important history of our, of our region, so we're really proud of it. We're proud to have it and honored to have that collection here. One big union in wood, gonna roll and go with the CIO, gonna roll the union on. Lumber workers had tried many times before, but year after year they were crushed to the floor. Company spies and company towns, injunctions, vigilantes kept the lumberjack down. He worked all winter till his bones would freeze, slept in the bunkhouse with the bed bugs and fleas. He ate a slop from a greasy old plate, worked from early in the morning till late. He carried his blanket on his back, the homeless, voteless lumberjack, a timber beast. A bindle stiff, a blanket bum, he sure needed a union. But these aren't the only heroes of the piece. Before there was John Mountain, Terry Inglis, Pat Foster, and others at the Katza Historical Society, there were people like Al Lundgren, the late Roger Stanier, and the treasure of Wilmer Gold's photos. Al Lundgren takes up the story of how Duncan Local 180 managed to save so much of its own archives. Well, it, it was interesting with me because I, I, as a kid growing up, I had no idea um, the background of my neighbors, or parents' neighbors, uh, my dad originally bought uh, the chicken coop and backyard of Owen and Edna Brown, who Owen was the, the uh, uh, second president of the local 180. Edna, of course, had been the head of, uh, of the women's auxiliaries. And, uh, and then Kitty Corn to us uh, 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 was uh, Bergie Berggren and Yalmar Berggren and Myrtle. And these were all neighbors, and I just assumed that that was, they were just who they were. I had no idea that they had this tremendous background. Um, There's a house uh, that the Gustafsons owned, and that was the strike headquarters for the 1934 strike, and the area was called the Picket Camp. I just thought it was because of the fences. I didn't know. Two of those early organizers spoke to Howie Smith way back in the 1970s. Yalmer Berggren talked of the dangerous conditions that were the norm before the IWA and other BC unions finally won the right to union recognition. Of course, it was uh, it was dangerous. Until the union was established, somebody got killed. Well, that was uh, they didn't stop anybody from working. No, you just throw them to the side. That's all, and and uh, kept on working. You took them out when you had time. Ernie Dalskog recalled being met at the logging camps by superintendents wielding pick handles and once even a shotgun as he tried to organize the loggers. We didn't get recognition of the union nor recognition of camp committees. But we did put the fear of God into the employer. We're fallers and buckers and chokers, setters, sawyers, mechanics, IWA go-getters. Men who run bulldozers, men who run cranes, we run the sanders, we run the planes, chippermen, glue mixers, electricians, shingle packers. Log stackers in weird-sounding positions, like green chain off-bearer, shake-makers, rigging-slinger, crazy-sounding jobs. Al Lundgren worked many years as an IWA faller, but he was also a skilled artist who had attended the Vancouver School of Art. He used this talent to illustrate a number of safety pamphlets for the WCB, serving many years as a safety advocate. 
but he was keenly interested in preserving IWA history as well. Roger uh, Stanier uh, was elected uh, president of Local 180. Um, I can't remember the date now, 19, 1974, I think it was, up till 1990. And during his tenure, uh, he had a real interest in, in the history of, of uh, the industry. And so he asked the membership if they would be kind enough to donate pictures to start an archive. And they did. And there were all kinds of pictures that arrived. Some were pretty terrible, some of them were really good. Well, eventually, there was a well-known photographer in the area by the name of Wilmer Gold, who let the world know that uh, his pictures were gonna come up for sale. And he immediately jumped on it and thought, we have to get this for the local. So he, he brought it to the membership meeting. <laughs> And of course, you know, you get a, a membership uh, meeting in those years are interested in, in other things. And when Roger said, well, I want to spend a considerable amount of money to get these, these images, you know, you're just getting a bunch of pictures for it. I mean, what's the value of that? So it took a lot of talking before he finally was successful, and thank God he was. But then at the same time, he was fortunate in that uh, Local 180 ran its own local newspaper. Uh, they hired an editor by the name of Ken McEwen, and Ken ended up being uh, the caretaker of, of the archive. And it kept continuing to grow. Well, when Ken left, then I came on the scene and inherited it. Um, and it, it, was, it was so much fun at that time because it was a busy, busy archive. Um, everything from uh, a family member wanting a picture of Uncle Joe to hang on the wall, to anthropologists coming in to, to look at the First Nations pictures, uh, uh, muse other museums contacting uh, authors and researchers. Um, I don't know how many books have been published using the, uh, Gold's pictures, but there's quite a number. And, and it was great fun working with them because uh, they would arrive uh, with a particular picture in mind, and I'd listen to them and I'd think, gee, you know, I think I got something better, and then we'd go through the catalogs. And it was great fun, it was a good experience. The lumber worker tried as hard as he could. Every timber town was stained with his blood. Centralia, Everett, Aberdeen, Louisiana, Newfoundland, the toughest battles labor's ever seen. He organized in Canada and the USA. He had lots of unions before the IWA, but he just couldn't make them stick. The International Union of Shingle Workers, the International Union of Timber Workers, the industrial workers of the world, the lumber workers industrial union, the sawmill and timber workers union, the federation of woodworkers, not to mention a company union with a fancy name of the loyal legion of loggers and lumbermen. No one has to tell Vic Berrar about the real life value of the IWA archives. Berrar worked only briefly in the woods, but that experience and what he saw of his father's union work shaped his life. Jaswant Singh Barar played a huge role in bringing South Asian woodworkers into Local 180. Okay, so uh, Dad being, uh, being the educated one and these bunkhouse gentlemen uh, who Dad would do the letter writing for, so Dad became in the Yubo sawmill the interpreter. So I remember the union president, Mr. Juvenville, and that's in my era. And like I say, I only spent three years in the union, but 
I'll come back to that. The union never ever left me, but the <clears throat> dad being the interpreter, the IWA president of the time would be at our home on a Saturday evening. And okay, Jaswan, here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's what we want to do. I want you to explain to all the crew. Here's here's the game plan, the agenda, and we want to um, uh, have them on side. Here's where we're eventually uh, going to try to uh, uh, achieve. So dad would, and dad did that all his life. Even after he, he retired, our home was still a very popular place. So as far as dad goes, the, he, in the land that he acquired, and good old Alan Lundgren, I would have forgotten it, but Al Lundgren a few years ago sends me an email, and then he follows it up with a uh, phone call. And I says, Al, where'd you get that? He says, well, you know, my dad's involvement in the IWA. I says, yeah. He says, well, they bought this land from your dad, and we built the IWA hall on that property. And I just found it going through all the IWA archives that Alan's still doing to this day. God bless him. God bless him indeed. There are treasures like that in all Union archives. Without them, so many stories and so much of what Unions did in those long-ago days would be lost to the dustbin of history. That would be a tragedy. Al Lundgren was asked point-blank, why should Unions keep their archives? Oh, it's, it can be so fleeting, you know. Um, you have unions that have done so much work over the years, and so much good for the communities. Um, you know, it's not just increasing wages or, or, or whatever. It's, it's the impact that they have where they're at. And I was constantly after um, the officers in Local 180 to keep track of their notes, write them down. You know, you've done something you're proud of. Keep it. Get a photocopy of it. Well, 40 years ago, we got a brand new start. The IWA gave lumber workers heart. We improved the conditions. We raised the pay. Won all kinds of benefits with the IWA health and welfare. Pensions and life insurance. Vacations and holiday pay. Safety and seniority protection. Overtime and travel time. Good eating and sleeping in the lumber camp. Well, it's 40 years later, and truth be told, we feel like 21, not 40 years old. We've still got lots of hard work to do. we got to organize and make the job better for you and you and you, wherever you are. Because the IWA isn't run by some labor czar. It's run by you and your buddies in the woods and the shops. It's too late to look back, and it's too early to stop. So we'll just keep moving ahead. Building a union of woodworkers. We may not be the biggest, but let me tell you something, we're one of the best. Let's keep it that way for the next 40 years. The IWA Annex Archive in Lake Cowichan is a model of what unions can do to preserve their past. We hope we may have inspired some of you to go over there and take a look. We at the BC Labour Heritage Centre salute them. 
It's the work of angels. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of On the Line. Thanks to Donna Sakuda, Executive Director of the Labour Heritage Centre, and Patricia Weir of the Podcast Collective for the interviews with the folks in Lake Cowichan. And thanks to John Mabbott for putting it all together. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on the line. Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919. That was the day that the chorus girls of the Ziegfeld Follies formed a union. They called their organization the Chorus Equity Association. The Ziegfeld Follies were the hottest ticket on Broadway during the early 1900s. The show was most famous for their chorus girls in elaborate costumes, bedecked with feathers and sparkles. In 1919, performers on Broadway, as well as Chicago, were standing up for fairer wages and better treatment on the job. The Actors' Equity Association's contract had expired, and the actors demanded a fair contract. The producers banded together into the Producing Managers Association. Actors and producers faced off. The actors held a meeting and decided not to go on stage unless the contract was settled. Membership in the union swelled. Twelve shows in New York alone were canceled. When Florence Ziegfeld, the head of the Ziegfeld Follies, joined the producers group, the chorus girls took this as a bad sign. They decided it was time they, too, joined the union movement. A former chorus girl named Marie Dressler was elected the first union president. The chorus girls joined the striking actors for a march down Broadway. The Ziegfeld performers formally went out on strike, and the curtain fell on the Follies. Chicago theaters also went dark. In all, 37 productions were shut down in the two cities. Finally, on September 7th, the strike was settled and the Follies returned. In 1955, Chorus Equity merged with the Actors' Equity Association. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to On the Line, Stories of B.C. Workers, the always excellent Canadian labor history storytelling podcast produced by the volunteers and staff of the B.C. Labor Heritage Center. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor history and arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter 
at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.